Well, I want to echo Mark's uh, comments. I also appreciate the music tonight and thank you for your ministry to all of us. This evening I want to do a second message and probably the concluding one on the theme, What Must I Do to Be Saved? The controversy over the issue, sometimes termed lordship salvation, is one that is burning fiercely in various circles of the evangelical world. The temperature of the fire was increased by the publication last year of John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. At the end of the week, I got a copy of the newsletter for today and noticed on the back of it that that book was previewed by our library staff and is available to you to read. I don't disagree with the comments made about it. I uh, would also say, though, that I don't fully agree with everything that John MacArthur says in his book. Uh, It is a fine book in many respects, but I think he overstates his case uh, here or there, and I'm a friendly critic. Uh, I I count him as a friend, and I appreciate him a great deal uh, for what he's meant in my life. But uh, I think that if he were to write his book again, he might change a few things in there that would help everyone involved. Additional books now are being planned by various authors, some of whom he named in his book and uh, rather attacked, to try to uh, respond to what he in his book said regarding their positions. The thing I want to hasten to say is that people on both sides of this issue uh, are well known to all of us. Uh, We love and respect them. Uh, They do disagree, uh, sometimes verbally at least, rather violently, regarding this particular issue. But uh, there are good and godly men on both sides. Unfortunately, though, I think instead of clarifying the debate for most of us, at least some of these books are a source of even more questions and more misunderstandings. Tonight, I want to approach this subject from a different perspective than when I spoke a a few weeks ago. On that occasion, I tried to answer two questions. The first one, what is the gospel? And the second, what is the necessary response to the gospel for a sinner to be saved? And that night, we talked about the two terms that are used in the New Testament, believe and repent. And we said that while the two terms are not synonymous, they mean different things, they nonetheless are interchangeable in the New Testament language. And that if one genuinely believes, there is an element of repentance in that. And if one genuinely repents, faith is a part of that. And I hope that the thing that got across that night above everything else I might have said is that neither faith nor repentance can be properly viewed as a human work. That is, as something we do to earn salvation. But I strongly believe that Scripture teaches that both faith and repentance are the gifts of God's gracious work enabling us to appropriately respond to the gospel message. Now, tonight's message is based upon a brief article that I came across uh, that my wife actually found and gave to me 
in, from the Discovery Digest published by the Radio Bible Class in Grand Rapids, Michigan, this particular issue, August 1987. It was written by Herbert Vanderluck, who is on their staff there and has been for a number of years, and the article was entitled, What Would You Do? In this brief article, Mr. Vanderluck outlines six principles that I think help all of us think more clearly regarding the gospel and how to present it. I guess my feeling is that if the two sides in this controversy could only back away from the polarization that has taken place and from the, uh, the language that they have used on each other, and if they could turn down the temperature on the debate a few degrees and just look at the biblical principles, the simple principles that we want to talk about tonight, we would all benefit from that. Unfortunately, there's a lot of choosing of sides based upon one's uh, heroes, one's uh, favorite authors or favorite uh, Bible teachers, radio teachers. <clears throat> and that choosing of sides smacks a little bit of, of Corinth to me and to the low state of, of spirituality that was present in the believers of that day. It seems to me that we have gotten along together in the past. I say we, I mean in the broad evangelical camp. We've gotten along together in the past, and we should continue to do that, and that the enemy is not each other. The enemy is outside the camp. Some have forgotten that. Now, I want to talk about these six principles tonight. I hope they will, will help you to avoid becoming polarized over this issue. The first principle, and by the way, none of these are going to appear to be brand new ideas to you. The first one is this, very simply, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And you see a number of passages there that undergird that. Probably the most familiar one is the first one, but the one that speaks to the issue the most clearly is the familiar last one, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Let's just look that text up in Ephesians to uh, remind us all. There may be some here who are not familiar with the verse, and we don't want to take that for granted. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. That is, God's unmerited favor is the source of our salvation. Grace is not something we earn. It's unmerited. And it comes from God. And he says, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And so salvation is by God's grace, and it comes to us through faith and faith alone. Now there's a certain implication that comes along with this principle. It is this, that to demand lifestyle changes as a condition for salvation introduces the works concept. In other words, let's just uh, pull one out of the hat here for the moment. If I am speaking with a friend who, uh, let's say, smokes. And I am seeking to lead him to personal faith in Christ. 
The implication of this statement is that I should not make his giving up smoking a requirement for him receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. Because salvation is by grace through faith alone. It has nothing to do with works that any human being might attempt to try to clean up his act or turn over a new leaf or whatever to please God. It's by grace through faith. The implication, again, to demand lifestyle changes as a condition for salvation introduces the works concept. Be careful of that. Then we come to principle number two. And by the way, I never took a course in how to use one of these overheads when I was in Bible school, so I'll do the best I can. Principle number two, a person receives the new birth and the indwelling Holy Spirit when he believes on Jesus Christ. And again, you see a list of verses that undergirds this. One that's not here, but which is close at hand in Ephesians is in chapter 1 of that book. Verse 13, it says, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And so a person receives the new birth, that is, he is born again, and the Holy Spirit comes to live in him when he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is another implication that goes with this principle. And that implication is, an unsaved person is dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Even if he desires a different lifestyle, he does not have the power to break his destructive habits. Why? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't live in him. The Holy Spirit lives only in the believer, the one who has been born again. And so even if he desires to change, he doesn't have the power in himself to break those habits that are destroying him. Only the Holy Spirit can bring that power. There's a third principle. Good works are the fruit, not the root, of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, again, is right at hand here. But it goes ahead to verse 10. After saying that salvation is by grace through faith, it goes on to say in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul seems to point to the fruit here, beyond the root, which is faith and grace. He points beyond that now to the fruit of genuine salvation, which is good works. An implication goes along with principle number three. To expect an unsaved person to change is like looking for good fruit from a bad tree. That is not biblical, it is not reasonable, it doesn't go together. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Bad fruit comes from a bad tree. Jesus made that clear in his teaching. So we have to remember that good works are the fruit and not the root of faith.
Now there is a fourth principle. Mere head belief and verbal assent produces a faith which is dead and worthless. And the suggested text for this is James 2. It's rather lengthy, but let's just go there and pick out a verse or two. James chapter 2. Again, these are familiar verses. In verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, says James, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Now remember, James is not confusing how we get saved. He's trying to explain what happens when we become saved. And he says that a faith or a profession of faith that is not undergirded by works in the life, how can that faith save him? And he says in verse 17, Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And he uses the demons there as an illustration of those who believe in God, but it's not a saving belief, obviously. And so mere head belief and verbal assent produces a faith which is dead and worthless. I think that's a pretty critical principle in light of some of the evangelistic methods that uh, some promote, at least, in uh, our world today. It is not enough merely to give someone the head facts of the gospel. It, it, it has to start there. They have to understand but it must go deeper than the intellect. It has to enter the heart so that also the will, the emotions, and the spirit is affected. And the verbal assent. I mean, it's possible for a person to pray a prayer, to say the right words, and yet for all of that to be dead as far as genuine faith is concerned and worthless as uh, with reference to salvation. Principle number five Repentance is a vital element in saving faith. Mentions here some of the preaching of Jesus in the texts that are referred to in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Luke 15, he talks about the importance of repentance. Uh, Peter mentioned that on the day of Pentecost. But let's turn to Acts 20 and 21. Because there we see both faith and repentance mentioned in the same context. I think it's a key verse in this whole debate. Now we defined both faith and repentance the last time. I'm not going to go into a great deal of explanation about that, except to remind you that repentance is a change of mind, but it's more than just some kind of a mental gymnastics. It also has fallout in the life. <clears throat> Acts 20, 21, Paul says in his ministry, he was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter follows up with that in his 2 Peter 3, 9 to talk about repentance. Those two words, as we said before, are used somewhat interchangeably. They're not synonymous, but when you say the one uh, the other is included in that, in a biblical sense. Now there is an implication that goes along with this principle. 
A person who undergoes genuine repentance with respect to God and his own sinfulness will experience a degree of sorrow for sin and a desire for deliverance from it. That's what I mean when I say there's some fallout from repentance. It's not just mental gymnastics, but there is a certain degree of sorrow for that sin in the life and a desire for deliverance from it. Uh, That desire for deliverance will basically be focused on that area of conviction that the Holy Spirit has brought to light within the sinner. But repentance is a vital element in saving faith. And then the final principle, culturally dictated standards and practices not specifically dealt with in the scriptures are matters of personal conviction. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 are two chapters, long chapters, dealing with this principle. Culturally dictated standards, that is, where the Bible does not speak specifically regarding certain practices or issues. Uh, Those are matters of personal conviction. And those verses undergird that. And we are to learn to accept each other in these areas for where we are. That is not a matter of compromise in the slightest. It is a matter of obedience to God. To accept each other, for God has accepted us, even though we may differ regarding some of these things and feel very strongly about what we believe, what our convictions are, and we are responsible to live in light of those. But we have to recognize that a brother or sister may differ with us, and we are to accept them. Well, there's an implication that goes with this too. We must not make roadblocks to salvation out of such matters as these. Actually, the illustration that I used earlier would be an example, I think, of, uh, of this. We are not to make roadblocks to salvation out of such matters. Now, I hope that you've jotted those down, because I want to read a couple of <clears throat> cases that uh, Dr. Vanderluck, in his article, speaks to. And I would like for you to think about the issue here with respect to the six principles. How would you respond to these situations? Which of these principles do you think apply? I'm going to do my best just to stick to his response and not to elaborate on that for time's sake. But listen now as he gives us a couple of of case histories of point to deal with where we can apply these six principles. Joe is the owner of a tavern in a small town. He's good to his family, gives generously to community causes, and respects the churches in his community. Some time ago, he prayed the sinner's prayer when a pastor called on him in his home. He started going to church, but he quit when he was told that he couldn't join the new members class until he had gotten out of the tavern business. Joe was surprised and hurt. He views himself as an honorable businessman, licensed by the state to sell alcoholic beverages. He also wonders why the pastor didn't tell him that this would be an issue. He is confused and somewhat angry. Well, now in a situation like that, which of the principles that we've talked about do you think apply? Well, this is Mr. Vanderluck's response, and it's one that I generally would agree with. 
although not all of us perhaps would apply the same principles. He says this, like the pastor, I would not have demanded that Joe agree to get out of the tavern business as a condition for salvation. I take this position on the basis of principles 1, 2, 3, and 6. Now, if you jotted them down, you can see which principles those are. He goes on to say, I would not have, I rather, I would have done my very best to present the facts of God's holiness and human sinfulness to Joe so clearly that he would realize his guilt before the Lord and grasp the wonder of Calvary. Then I would have pointed out that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is Lord, and that he is to be acknowledged as Master. This would have enabled me to determine whether or not Joe had a repentant and submissive spirit. If I saw that he had this proper attitude, I would have led him in a prayer of commitment. However, I would have also discussed the problem with him and shown him why I as a Christian could not in good conscience serve alcoholic beverages. I would then have trusted God to work in Joe's life to show him that his business does not glorify the Lord and to give him strength to make the right decision about his business. Well, that is Mr. Vanderluck's response. But as you would think about a guy like Joe, which principles would you apply in your witnessing to him and your helping of him? There is another case history that Mr. Vanderluck points out. And uh, it's one that, again, I think you need to look at in light of the principles that we've talked about. Rachel works as an actress for a low-budget adult movie company. She doesn't like some of the roles she has to play, but she tells herself that she's only acting and that the movies don't really harm anybody. She recently went through a time of spiritual struggle. A Christian woman in the apartment next door made an impact on her. Rachel was at the point where she would probably have made a decision for Christ in quotes, if given the opportunity. However, the neighbor told her that receiving the Lord Jesus would require that she quit making pornographic movies. This stopped Rachel in her tracks. She rebelled more or less like she had when she was a teenager growing up in a Christian home. She suddenly cooled in her attitude toward her Christian neighbor, and now she avoids her completely. Now, did the Christian neighbor apply the principles correctly, do you think? Well, this is Mr. Vanderluck's response. Compare it to your own as you think through those six principles. He says, I agree with the Christian who told Rachel that accepting Christ would be totally inconsistent with her continuing in her profession. But I would not have told Rachel to quit her job first and then come back to receive Christ. To, to, to do this would be to violate principles 1, 2, and 3. However, I would have been very frank with Rachel. Her guilt feelings showed that deep down she knew her occupation was degrading. I would expect her to express a willingness to give it up. I would view her refusal as an indication that she had not really repented, principle number 5. She had not changed her mind about God, sin, or her lost condition. To lead her through the motions of accepting Christ while letting her think in terms of continuing her immoral job would do her great injustice. 
She would have the idea that merely giving mental assent to the gospel is all that is necessary. She would have the kind of faith James said that demons possess, the kind of faith which he refers to as dead and worthless. Principle number four. Once again, I would agree with the Mr. Vanderluck and the application of those principles. Now, I point them out to you tonight because I want to say again, I believe that if both sides of the controversy could come together and put aside their rhetoric, put aside the name-calling of each other, put aside the polarization that has taken place, put aside the uh, choosing up of sides uh, around their favorite teachers and preachers, and if they could come and look at the biblical principles involved, that we could declare peace in most of the camp. I wish that could happen. I, uh, at, them, at this point, am a little uh, pessimistic that that's going to happen very soon. I hope it will eventually. But I also point out these principles because every one of you are dealing with people like Joe and Rachel. There are lots of issues involved who are witnessing to people. And I guess one of the concerns I have when we, when we talk about... <clears throat> the controversy of lordship salvation versus easy believism is that some of us can get so wrapped up worrying about whether we're going to say the right thing or the wrong thing or what is the right thing or the wrong thing that we back away from witnessing altogether. And that is exactly what the devil wants us to do with this controversy. The fact is that you and I probably too often make small mistakes in witnessing to people. Uh, we may say things that, that would be better left unsaid. We may make certain implications that might not have wisely been made. We might have used a scripture out of context a little bit. But the fact is that God is gracious with all of us. He knows that we are imperfect. And he uses our witness, imperfect as it too frequently is, to speak to people and to bring them under conviction and to the point of repentance and faith and belief in Jesus Christ. So my plea with you tonight is to look at these six principles. And as you witness to people, seek to apply them. But don't become so bound up with fear over the right terminology or the exact right way to say it that you never do say it. Accept the fact that that uh, you're an imperfect vessel, as all of us are. Seek to say it as best as God gives you the wisdom to say it, to share your faith that way. Seek to apply these principles as God would lead you in applying them. But please, literally, for heaven's sake, don't be afraid to share your faith because of the controversy that rages. There are people out there who desperately need the message that you and I have. And I believe that if we give that message, being filled with the Holy Spirit and seeking to apply these principles, if we seek to give that message as clearly as God enables us to give it, that God will use us and that God will make us a blessing to people. That's where we started tonight. Make me a blessing. I'd like for us to I think that was an amen from the angels as they uh, danced over the ceiling. I, uh, I hope that's what it was. I would like for you to open your hymn book and let's sing together 
in closing a, a hymn I think that speaks to the very same issue as where we started tonight. It's number 92. It's channels only. And I repeat, all of us are imperfect channels. Uh, there, we make mistakes. But don't let that make you afraid to witness to other people. Ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit and to use you. And as weak and imperfect as we may be, He chooses to use us as His channels. And so let's seek to be that, to be that faithfully. Let's stand together now as we sing. How I praise Thee, precious Savior, that Thy love laid hold of me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might Thy channel be. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power flow through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Let's sing now the second verse without the chorus, and we'll just go right back to the fourth verse and sing the chorus. Verse number two. Empty that thou shouldest fill me, a clean vessel in thy hand, with no power but as thou givest graciously with each command. Verse 4. Jesus, fill now with thy Spirit, Hearts that full surrender know That the streams of living water From our inner man may flow Channels only, blessed Master But with all thy wondrous power Flowing through us, thou canst use us every day, every hour. Isn't it just great that God chooses to use people like us to be a blessing to others? But isn't it wonderful, too, that he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we're empowered to do that? So let's not go out to be a blessing in our own strength. But yield to the Lordship of Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to flow through the channel that God's created this to be. Lord, that is the desire of most of us here tonight, I'm sure. And we pray that you will use us as a channel, whether it be at the restaurant that we might go to after this service, or to family members we'll go home to, or to people at the office tomorrow, or neighbors in the neighborhood Wherever we are, remind us that we're channels. However imperfect, we're channels. That you've chosen to use us, you've cleansed us, and you've empowered us by the Holy Spirit. And so make us a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.